Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. I'm Afwa Hirsch. I'm Peter Frankopan. And in our podcast, Legacy, we explore the lives of some of the biggest characters in history. This season, we're exploring the life of Cleopatra. An iconic life full of romances, sieges and tragedy. But who was the real Cleopatra? It feels like her story's been told by others with their own agenda for centuries. But her legacy is enduring, and so we're going to dive into how her story has evolved all the way up to today. I am so excited to talk about Cleopatra, Peter. Love she Cleopatra. She is an icon. She's the most famous woman in antiquity. It's got to be up there with the most famous woman of all time. But I think there's a huge gap between how familiar people are with the idea of her compared to what they actually know about her life and character. So for pyramids, Cleopatra and Cleopatra's nose. Follow Legacy Now wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can binge entire seasons early and ad-free on Wondery+. Plus. Hi everybody, welcome to Dan Snow's History Hit. We're going to talk about the papacy. How nice did the papacy emerge? From the humblest of beginnings, from a poor fisherman who arrived in Rome to minister to the small Christian community that existed there in the first century AD, who was executed, who was crucified in Rome, given a pauper's burial. How from that beginning did the institution of the papacy the bishopric of Rome, the vicar of Christ. How did it flourish and become one of the most important players on the international scene and is now an institution that has lasted longer, arguably, than any other modern institution on planet Earth? What made pagan Rome embrace the light of Christ, turning itself into a Christian empire? And perhaps almost as strangely, why did the successor states to Rome in North Africa in Spain, France, Britain, Italy. Why did they also embrace Christianity when a new class of conquerors moved in to replace the Roman Empire? Well, here to tell us all about it is the very brilliant Jessica Warnberg. After completing a PhD at St Andrews, she's written brilliant books, she's written about the Jesuits, and now she has written a massive book about the Christian nature of the city of Rome. It's called City of Echoes. She traces the story of how a humble cult leader became more important than the Roman emperor himself in just the space of a couple of centuries, and how their successors cemented and grew that power and influence. We're going to answer some of the big questions on this podcast, folks. Enjoy. Never to go to war with one another again. And lift off, and the shuttle has cleared the tower. Jessica, great to have you on the podcast. Great to be here. This is the big question, but how does Rome, which is an empire famous for its people enjoying the spectacle of 
men and women killing each other in the Colosseum and other arenas. How does this giant, bloodthirsty, famously pagan empire end up Christian? So it's a huge question. And somebody asked me the other day, if St. Peter went to Rome today, what would he think? Would he be happy? And at first I thought, CBD oil shops, Zara, modern Rome, probably not. But then I realised he'd be delighted. He'd be thrilled because Rome is utterly Christian in its architecture. Um, it's fabric. It's transformed from the time when he arrives there. And so when Peter, who's kind of the central figure in this transformation, arrived in Rome, he's an anonymous figure. He's a fisherman from the seas of Galilee. He's arriving in this pagan capital that's sort of thrusting with religion, where they're worshipping, you know, a multitude of gods. Everything revolves around religion, you know, political decisions, a bit of pragmatism as well and sort of dynastic ambition. But there are sacrifices to all kinds of gods. And the god that Peter worships, the one Christian god, is the god of a minority cult, one of many minority cults. You've got kind of the cult of Mithras and the Temple to Sol and, and all of these other cults. And they're, they're unknown. They're seen as sort of a pesky offshoot of Judaism, if they're considered at all. And so the transformation of Rome is a remarkable and really unlikely story because it goes back to Peter and Paul, these two men from the Middle East coming to the Roman Empire. Now, Paul comes not because he's spreading the word of Jesus Christ, um, of Jesus of Nazareth, who's only recently died. He comes because he's on trial and he's decided to appeal to the emperor because he thinks he's going to get a fair trial in Rome. That doesn't work out for him. He ends up being executed in Rome. But he meets all these Christians who are there in their humble little house churches. Peter also dies in Rome, crucified, later sources say, on the Vatican Hill. The Vatican Hill is a dusty remote place where there's a graveyard and where Nero had his racetrack. And when Peter died there, he died probably seen as, if seen by anybody, a kind of local pest. Somebody was causing unrest by spreading sort of anti or non-pagan ideas or doing things which were non-pagan, which were against the grain. A very few people would have taken notice. But the small early group of Christians did take notice. And on that spot where he died, they started going, they started venerating his bones. And there they sort of traced the first footsteps of what would one day be some pieces basilica, but then was just a little tiny shrine. And it's in that story of Peter dying in Rome that we see the spark of this transformation because Peter had been chosen by Jesus to be the head of the church. And so when Peter dies in Rome, it gives anybody who comes after him the right to say, this is the head of the church. Now, even that, Dan, didn't happen for centuries, you know, that anybody was really listening. You know, these figures are unknown, these Christian figures and their leaders as they emerge, they're unknown for decades and decades. And then a major moment of transformation comes uh, when Constantine, who's uh, the son of a Roman emperor and wants to take over the Roman Empire as a sole ruler of the empire, prays the night before a battle or goes to sleep and has a vision. And instead of seeing one of the pagan gods that he's been praying to, he sees the son of God of the Christians. He sees Jesus. who tells him, look, if you go out to battle your foes in my sign, in the sign of my name, in the Cairo, you will win. He goes out to meet his foe, Maxentius, the next day, and he wins. So when he comes back to Rome, he doesn't make a sacrifice to Jupiter, but he starts honouring this Christian God. And there we really see this moment, along with his later legalization of Christianity, where this maligned, shadowy cult who are talking about the death 
of a Galilean fisherman on the Vatican Hill. You know, something that these Romans who love triumph and conquest and winning are not interested in really at all, when that becomes endorsed by an emperor. And even though we're unsure if he even converted to Christianity, it becomes a state sponsored religion and you start getting basilicas and the fabric of Rome starts changing. But it's grounded in this really strange story, if we think about it objectively. Why is Constantine Christian curious? Like, why does it pop up in his dreams? We tend to dream about things that we're kind of familiar with in the first place, right? So what's been going on in the Roman world that means Christianity has been nibbling at the heels of people like Constantine? So even immediately after Jesus dies, you know, you get figures who knew him and then later figures like Paul who didn't know him going out all over their known world in this sort of area of the Mediterranean basin, Greece, Turkey, Rome, and it follows the footprint of the empire more or less. So Christians are around. And even by the second century, you know, it's not a dominant religion, but pagans are starting to turn Christian. And the allure of this is a bit puzzling. Like you painted a picture early on of this place that's all about sort of gladiatorial compact, victory, fighting, conquest, winning. And these are people whose God died on a cross in the most humiliating way. But there is something compelling about this message. And I think for a lot of people, it's the stories, right, of these people who are being persecuted for their religion. Teenagers, like a Roman teenager called Agnes, who was killed by the Roman government for being a Christian. And I think these stories make it really compelling. So people do start to convert. They get in a lot of trouble. You know, there's a story of a a Roman woman who was... um, Her husband found out she converted to become a Christian and her teacher's put in prison and she's punished. You know, a lot of people are punished and are killed for being Christians. And people, for some reason, start to be compelled by these stories and start converting. And so you do get pagans who are converting, not just the Jewish community of Rome or people from these more sort of minor cults. And so it's on the radar of Constantine. It's part of his world. He's becomes familiar enough with it, as you say, for Christ to appear to him in a dream and him to think, do you know what? Jupiter, I'm not going to follow you today. I'm going to go out, you know, in the name of this guy. And then he wins and he's justified by it. He wins the Battle of Milvian Bridge in 312 AD. And then so you mentioned the Edict of Milan, where he granted religious tolerance. That effectively ends the persecution of Christians. Uh, that's not the end of it. The Christians had a few dodgy chapters after that, didn't they? It was not yet the kind of official religion of the empire, was it? No, I think he's sort of, Constantine's really important because he basically opens up the door, but he doesn't make Christianity cool yet. You know, it's sort of, his opening up the door to that. It's becoming, you know, you've got popes now sitting in a palace, not living in some backwater of Rome, you know, in Trastevere as an anonymous figure. They're sitting in the apse of a basilica. They've got public buildings, but even those buildings, like the Lateran, the first Christian basilica, is outside the centre of Rome. St. Peter's is in a remote place on the Vatican Hill. Constantine's not sort of ripping down the temple to Jupiter and putting up a temple to Christ or the Christian God in its place. But by the 380s, you get enough elite people who are becoming Christian uh, for people like Jerome to get really angry about the way they're behaving. Um, His letters are a great source for some of these stories. I feel bad sort of smiling as I say it because he was so angry. But he'd go into St. Peter's Basilica and there'd be women carried on litters, you know, surrounded by eunuchs with their faces sort of rouge, pretending to faint from fast because Christianity had become the thing to associate yourself with. And he's saying, you know, 
400 years or so, or less than 400 years after the death of Christ. No, this isn't what it was all meant to be about. But by that time, the 60, 70 years after Constantine has officially endorsed Christianity, it's becoming a more elite religion and it's becoming something that it's quite cool, it's quite prestigious to be associated with. So what exactly does Pope mean? And who's the first one? Is it Peter, technically? Is it the leader of Roman Christians? I'm sounding a bit like a Protestant in the Reformation here. Is it basically the Bishop of Rome? As far as we understand it now, the Pope was the Bishop of Rome. But Peter might upset people saying this, but Peter doesn't emerge as a Pope. You know, he's chosen by Christ to be the head of his church, but nobody's sort of treating him, as far as we know, from any sources like the Pope, you know, putting him in a central position at the top of a hierarchy of a Roman church making decisions. He's not even included, actually, as the first person in really early lists of Popes. You get these figures like Linus, Anakitas, who pop up. And Pope just means father. And lots of people are called Pope well into the seventh century, you know, and people all over, bishops all over are called Pope. But Popes as we know them, Popes as an authoritative leader, first of all, in Rome, calling the shots, don't emerge until the sort of 150s, 180s. We have to remember this was an immigrant sort of church. They're mixing with these pagan elite. They disagreed on a lot of things. And out of this disagreement, you get figures emerging who start laying down the law. So the bishops of Rome, the leaders of this church, this Roman church, figures like Victor, who's Pope in sort of the 180s, bishops of Rome in the 180s, have to start saying, no, 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 this is the date that we celebrate Easter, not that date. And anyone who doesn't agree with me is excommunicated, kicked out the church. Now we're looking a bit more like a Pope, right? It's not just somebody who's maybe writing letters on behalf of the community. It's not really until much later, so in the kind of 400s, that you get figures like Leo the Great, who really start asserting this really firmly and publicly to the rest of the Christian world globally. So there's a synod called the Gangster Synod. Now, synods aren't usually the most exciting prospect, right? Um, so please don't switch off. But it's called the Gangster Synod, right, for a reason. And then this is a meeting of all the sort of church leaders from across the Christian world in Ephesus. They called it the Second Council of Ephesus, not the Gangster Synod. And there, the Bishop of Alexandria tries to stop Leo's ambassadors, essentially, as envoys speaking, because he says, look, we're just as important. I'm the Bishop of Alexandria, you know. Other bishops of important places are here. Why does he think, why does the Bishop of Rome think that he should have this global authority? But Leo says, actually, I'm the successor of St. Peter, who was chosen by Christ. And um, after his envoys are shut down and the synod is stormed by these monks that Dioscorus has waiting outside, ready to kind of beat up anybody who tries to stick up for the Bishop of Rome. Um, after that all dies down, Leo very firmly says, if you speak against me, you speak against St. Peter. And he gets the last emperors who are in their kind of last gasps, people like Valentinian III. This is about a couple of decades before the Western Roman Empire falls. He gets them backing him up and saying, look, you are the most supreme person out of all of these bishops. And this is where really firmly, really publicly, you get figures who are not only the leaders of the Church of Rome, but who are the leaders of the Church of Rome and therefore, in their eyes, the leaders of the kind of global church. And this is where they really start publicly asserting this and succeeding in asserting this. And does Leo, you mentioned some of the slightly dodgy emperors at the end of the Western Roman Empire. Does Leo have a position of strength even compared to them? Doesn't he meet Attila the Hun? And start, he starts to look quite political in a very secular sense, doesn't he? Exactly. He goes out to meet Attila the Hun. He's sent out by the emperors. You know, this time, the emperors aren't even in Rome. You know, the Western Roman emperors 
are often in Ravenna on the eastern coast of Italy, where maybe the climate's a bit better, you're further away from all these invading barbarians. And people like Valentinian are sending Leo out to meet people, to negotiate. And it's him who has to ride out to meet Attila and say, please turn back, you know, send your men back. Don't sack Rome. It's not the emperor. So you're right, in this power vacuum, even before the Western Empire has fallen, the Pope is stepping up as a figurehead. Leo's stepping up as a figurehead. He also, you know, goes out and meets Geyseric, you know, another kind of barbarian invader, just as he's about to sack Rome and, and sort of sticks up for the Roman people. So he's taking on this global Christian Rome, but he's also becoming a de facto ruler in Rome. And he says something really, really interesting, which I think kind of sums up how he saw things and how he saw his political role. He said to the Roman people, apparently, as Rome is sort of crumbling around their ears, don't worry, you rule over a much vaster empire through Peter than you ever did through the emperors. So basically, you don't have to worry about having an army or being rich because through this prestige that the death of Peter has given Rome, you know, we've got an authority that nobody can take away. And I think he had a point, right? It survived for 2,000 years as empires have fallen, dictators have come and gone. And so he really did see himself as a political figure, but, but sort of tied to this, his religious role and his religious authority. Okay, so Jessica, we're asking all the massive questions today. Let's just quickly deal with another one. We've all read our Edward Gibbon. He suggested in his decline for the Roman Empire that Christianity was a central part of that because you started loving thy neighbour and they started turning the other cheek rather than just slaughtering their enemies on the battlefield and in sieges as their ancestors had done. What is the relationship between Christianity, do you think, and the decline of the Western Roman world? I think that the popes step into, as I said, a power vacuum and not to be creating all kinds of sort of early modern and modern figures, but Hobbes said that the popes were crowned on the grave of empire, right? That they're really kind of stepping in and taking advantage of this. In terms of their responsibility for it, I don't think we can lay that at their door. I mean, if you just take something like the ending of the gladiatorial game, something that seemed to embody that sort of fighting spirit, you know, a lot of people say this is because of the Christians and they didn't like the fighting and the bloodshed. And, and a lot of Christians say that. There's a horrific story of somebody who came to Rome and he is a young man. He comes to Rome to have an austere, pious life and to live in this holy city. And he's there when they're sort of celebrating a triumph and he goes to a gladiatorial games and he starts protesting and he gets beaten up and killed. And the emperor says, oh, this is awful. We can't possibly have gladiatorial games. But at that time, they were already running out of money to perform these games. So often, you know, the games, gladiatorial combats were funded by politicians who wanted to make themselves popular with the people. They don't have the money for that. They don't have the resource. They're fighting, losing battles. And so I think that there is a coincidence of time, but I don't think that we can sort of blame the emergence of Christianity for weakening the Roman Empire, even if the popes did maybe take advantage or step into that role. There is a shift in and what's important, though, you get sort of nobles who hold these great feasts for the poor. And there's not really anything like that, that kind of arms giving, giving away your wealth, turning the other cheek, that sort of softer rhetoric um, or softer teachings. There's not really much like that in the pagan world. So you do get a transformation of values. But it's just a different sort of culture. So you've still got nobles, but they're not showing their greatness by getting two uh, great big men to have a fight to the death in the auditorium. They're showing their greatness by feeding the poor. Um, so, yeah, I think the weakness had already begun much before, you know, the elite anyway caught on to Christian charity. 
so I think, yeah, the Christians, I think blaming them for the fall of the Western empires is pretty punchy. But the other question is, have, given that fall, and this is where lots of early modern historians will be fidgeting, given that transfer or that change of regimes, the sort of end of Roman rule, the beginning of something different, how does Christianity make that extraordinary leap and survive and almost flourish into the beginning of the medieval period? Whereas Roman imperial rule sort of, well, it changes in something completely different. Mm. I think Lysus and Leo was right. You know, you've got a much greater empire now built on Peter. This idea that, well, if your authority is tracing something divine, nobody can take it away. Nobody can fight you for it. And actually, as more and more people become Christian, they're willing to defend it. So you have some remarkable stories, actually, of popes, going out to meet invaders and the invaders saying, so quite often the Lombard talks to get into kind of late antiquity, the invaders saying, okay, we'll leave Rome alone because that's Peter's lands and you're the popes. But all this other land that belongs to the Roman Empire that's then been ruled by that time by, from Byzantium, that's just land. We'll invade that, we'll take that. I'm sorry, we're not leaving Ravenna alone. That's just a place. Rome, we'll leave it. So the popes are able to kind of use their religious role to transcend normal politics. They're able to use the fact that their successors of Peter, who are ruling over this patch of land around Rome and Rome, to say we're different um, and they survive. And they're very smart about this. There's a, a really remarkable Pope from the late fourth century. He's not so well known, but I think he's Netflix material, Damasus. So he's the first sort of socialite Pope. He's in with all of the patricians, so much so that he gets the nickname, the ear pick of great ladies. Like he's cozying up to people who can help the church to get the money it needs. He's also a politician, right? He fights literally for the papacy against a rival. They're chucking tiles off the roofs of basilicas. He's getting his hands dirty in order to get this position. But once he's Pope, he doesn't rely on politics. He doesn't even rely on the emperor, and that's before the empire's fallen. He relies on the martyrs. And he writes poetry, which might seem slightly surprising, seeing as I've painted him as this kind of socialite thug. But he writes poems about all the Christians who've been persecuted and killed. And he gets them carved into sites all around Rome. And in doing this, he's saying, look, this is the basis of our power. Rome, this place where all these holy things happen, where we've got all these bones, we've got all these bodies of all these holy people, this is important land. And that's what these later popes can capitalise on when they're getting invaded to get these invaders to turn around, because a lot of them are Christian, even if they're not followers of the Pope, and they are willing to leave Rome alone to survive, to continue right into the medieval period, because that's Peter's land. We're not going to touch that. There might be repercussions. You listen to Dan Snow's history hit. The best is yet to come. Stick with us. Join us this month on Gone Medieval from History Hit. I'm Matt Lewis. And I'm Eleanor Yanaga. This April, dive into our special mini-series. With the help of leading experts, we're tracing the foundations of England by exploring the country's most powerful Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. We'll be looking at Northumbria, Mercia and Wessex, as well as the rulers and their councils who helped shape a nation. Make sure to get every episode by listening and following Gone Medieval from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom, 
like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. they convince people like the kings of the Ostrogoths and the sort of successor states to Rome, whether it's in Gaul, whether it's in Italy or Spain, how do they convince them to well, eventually embrace Christianity? What does Christianity offer these people, these supposedly barbarians or one or two generations removed from kind of barbarians? Why, why do they all support and accept the role of the Pope and accept Christianity and embrace it? So... There are two important things here. They're not necessarily accepting the role of the Pope. Okay, so a lot of them are, for example, Arian Christians who believe very different things about the nature of Christ and all these kind of issues that they're debating about at places like the Gangster Synod. Um, they're not all people who say, okay, the Pope is on high, and so we have to listen to what he says. But even those people who don't believe that he's the supreme power in the Christian world believe that he's the successor of Peter. They don't necessarily think that gives them the right to tell them what to do, but they believe he's somebody a bit special. And you see this going through all the way into the early modern period where you get Ethiopians coming to Rome to ask the Pope for blessings. So you think, well, the Ethiopians don't believe that he is the supreme leader of the church. Not everybody believes that, but they do believe that he's something special. So for the Pope side of things, that's something special, which sounds a little bit vague and a little bit hard to put your finger on, this notion that he is the successor of Peter. And that means something, even if it doesn't mean that he can tell everybody what to do, is very powerful. In terms of why Christianity appeals, I mean, that is that's sort of a, not just a big question, it's a million dollar question, because when you look at the kind of the pagan religion, sometimes people say Christianity offered people who are the poor and lowly and women an opportunity to be involved. But, you know, you look at books, uh, you know, Mary Beard's book on Roman religion, and you see there were women involved, you know, Roman religion, the cult of Magna Mater. There were ex-slaves who were playing music, you know, as part of religious ceremonies in the pagan world. And there were other groups where you got some of the perks like joint burial, there are Jewish catacombs in Rome. You get that fraternity, the cult of Mithras. You get sort of this sense of uh, fraternity and fellowship. Personally, I think that the what's compelling about the Christian message is all of these stories of people, ordinary people who are made extraordinary by clinging to their faith. How else could you get, you know, a 13-year-old girl in the Church of St. Agnes that has a shrine built to her? A Roman teenager, well, she has a shrine built to her because she was willing to die for her faith. I think that's quite appealing because it means that any of us could be made extraordinary. And I know some emperors became gods, but for most people, it was kind of out of the question, right? So saints aren't the same as being a, a god. But if you can see, yeah, somebody's an ordinary person who is able to make themselves extraordinary by being faithful, I think it's quite compelling. But yeah, I think lots of people would have other answers to that question. 
And does Christianity become a, a vehicle, a kind of safety deposit box for Romanitas, for learning, for the poetry, for the history and the culture? As Rome's armies are destroyed, these, you know, Theodoric, the barbarians, the Ostrogoths, the Visigoths, they can tap into, or something of Rome can survive through the church. Is that true? Is it a kind of vehicle for, for Roman values? Absolutely. And if we get to a period like the Renaissance, as a jump forward, the popes, you know, have left Rome for decades and decades and been in Avignon, and they come back, and there's this revival of interest in kind of the classical Roman world and Greek world, and they make that their own. They're building churches with elements of classical architecture in them. Cardinals are, you know, putting up sculptures of classical figures in their vineyards. And the popes, by being heads of Rome, figureheads of Rome, leaders of Rome, are also the owners of a lot of ancient Roman stuff and ancient Greek, or sort of copies of ancient Greek things. And so when they're digging up statues like the Loacorn or the Apollo Belvedere, then becoming owners of this, they're becoming custodians of the actual stones and leftover bits of fabric of the ancient Roman world. So there certainly isn't an idea that they are kind of custodians of those values. And, and they're not shy about co-opting them and making them part of Christian culture. There are popes who imprisoned, you know, Renaissance humanists who seem to be going a little bit too far and maybe going a bit back to the kind of pagan ways, a little bit too close to the boat. But other than that, they're employing the humanists who want to get back to the ancient values as secretaries and saying, yeah, like write nice classical Renaissance Latin, but write about Christianity because there's prestige in it and they're, they're not afraid of that. Always. And it strikes me that just going a little bit further back to this kind of transitional period of the fifth and the sixth centuries, where if you're an invading army, you topple the Roman state, great, but you can then enjoy all the benefits of Romanness, the bureaucracy, the learning, the culture, the art, and the religion, because you, you keep hold of the church so that it's not a military or even a, a massive political threat, you're still, you know, well done you, you're the king of Spain, congratulations you, Ostrogoth, Visigoth, whoever you are, but you get to enjoy Romanness because there's an intact institution there. So you can kind of have your cake and eat it. Yeah, exactly. And what's fascinating about some of the Goths, barbarians who become kings of Italy, they go to Rome and they start acting like Roman emperors, but they also go to St. Peter's. So you've got access to all of these things that you can use to legitimize yourself. One of these barbarian leaders, he says, you know, an able Goth doesn't want to be like a Goth at all. He wants to be like a Roman. And so they've got this kind of kick and mix of imperial uh, tropes wearing the purple garb of the emperor, but then very quickly in the scale of this long history, going to St. Peter's to venerate the tomb of the fisherman, as they refer to it, becomes a key part of this legitimization that you see all the way through until the medieval period, as a man called Colla di Renzo tries to take over Rome as, as this kind of demagogue, this charismatic leader. And he goes in the purple garb, tossing out coins, but on his way to St. Peter's, they become the hallmarks of legitimacy and power. And as you said, with not much of a threat, usually the popes have to ask for outside help to fight off these people when they won't play ball. So I think it's a really good point. I hadn't thought about that it, like that before. It's just such a match made in heaven for people. And, they, and obviously as Roman Christianity is reintroduced to parts of Southeast England, kings like it because they can tap into clever monks and an international network of useful ideas and letter writing and diplomacy and they get this kind of validation for their reign in a world in which the crown rested on the head fairly you were quite vulnerable when you had the crown on the head in many parts of Europe in this period right so and then popes and bishops like to they got they got well they got the protection of the state they got royal protection it's clever stuff 
It's the birth of the Holy Roman Emperor. Yeah, the Holy Roman Emperor, the first one, Charlemagne, is exactly that dynamic. I'll protect you. I'll protect your lands. His dad did as well, Pepin the Short. But please legitimize my rule and crown me Holy Roman Emperor. And that dynamic continues, ripples down centuries of I'll back you up, but give me a little bit of that prestige. And I really noticed that even in Protestant Britain during the King's coronation, I really was struck. The main takeaway from the coronation was, wow, a coronation is priests bossing the king around. Come over here, we're going to do another blessing. Right now, take that clothes on, put these clothes on. And it's like, all right, mate, come on. And that is why, amazingly, Napoleon crowned himself. I love that moment. He grabbed the crown in 1804. Napoleon crowned himself. He grabbed the crown off the Pope and stuck it on his own head going, listen, mate, you can come and be part of it, but I am crowning myself Emperor of the French. And I, th- I thought that was fascinating a moment in uh, Napoleonic history. Listen, because I've got you, we've, we've talked about the transition of pagan Rome to Christian Rome, and I feel I know and kind of understand it a lot more now. There's a lot more popes to come right down to the present day. In fact, we had two popes at the same time again recently. Just while you're here, give me some of your favourite popes or popes that you feel have helped to ensure that this institution has survived. Is it the oldest continually running institution on earth, do we think? So I think the oldest is at close to its original form. So I think the Japanese emperors, I've got into that fight before uh, about whether actually that's an older institution. But I would say the Pope is still sovereign of state. It might be the smallest state in the world, the Vatican state, but he is an independent sovereign. He still claims to be, you know, successor of Peter and uh, head of the global Christians. um, And he's head of the Roman Catholic Church. So I think for being intact, it's the oldest. I always get slightly nervous when people ask me about favourite popes because it's such a mixed bag and and they're all a bit good and a bit bad and we don't want to get into trouble endorsing historical figures. I think we've covered a lot of them. Another really great figure who really understands what it is to be figurehead in Rome is Gregory the Great, known for the missions. Um, But, you know, there's a wonderful moment that's recorded in sources and in contemporary chronicles of Gregory the Great, who's around the 6th century, and Rome's had the worst year ever. There's been a plague. The plague has killed the Pope. Snakes have come up the Tiber. A monster came up the Tiber. I'm not sure if that was a bit of exaggeration, but they're exaggerating because they've had a terrible year. And Gregory the Great walks with Romans through the center of Rome on a pilgrimage to St. Peter's, praying. And at this moment, uh, when they're crossing the bridge and they see the old mausoleum of Hadrian, they see an angel appear on top of it. Now, whether we believe that they, they saw an angel or not um, is sort of irrelevant. But I think it's an amazingly important moment because it shows the Pope acting as a figurehead and actually causing miracles in Rome for those people having a terrible year that transform Rome because the Muslim of Hadrian then becomes the Castel Sant'Angelo, so the castle of the Holy Angel. And I think he's an important figure because he really understands that to be this powerful figure to be this global figure, to be the Pope of Rome. You have to have a connection with the city. You have to have a connection with the people. You have to keep this pastoral role. And I think that's the kind of problem the papacy has in a way. Popes have got to be religious leaders who are seen to do the right thing and care about people. But at the same time, in order to do that, they've got to be head of this institution that's political, that at one time had to deal with trade, tax, waste, but has to meet heads of state. And they're sort of slightly contradictory roles at times. And I think that Gregory understood the importance of the pastoral aspect of that, of looking after people, whilst also being a very powerful sort of political figurehead. Uh, So he's a fascinating character and a really important one we haven't talked about yet. He's a big one. He's a big one. 
Uh, what about just go through some of the famously terrible ones? I love a terrible pope. Oh, my gosh. So in the 8th, 9th century, 10th century, it gets really, really bad. And sadly, for better or for worse, it's a period that's not necessarily well known. And it's called the Seculum Obscurum by people, or the pornocracy, which gives you a flavour. And so you get figures like Formosus. Um, Formosus I, he was trying to become bishop um, all over Europe. He then sets his sight on the papacy. And he offends so many people with his politicking that seven months after he's dead, his successor digs him up and puts him on trial in the Lateran Palace. He's tried, he has a deacon uh, defending him, and he's found guilty, surprise, surprise, of all of these crimes. I never say his successor is probably a pretty appalling one as well. I mean, digging up a dead pope and then trying him and then dumping him in the Tiber is not exactly exemplary behaviour. Um, but you get other figures like John Twelfth, who was a very young pope, and he got the help of emperors in defending the city. And then when the emperor came and saved him, he then thought, oh, the emperor's too powerful. Um, I don't want to rely on him. And he actually ended up siding with the person that the emperor had helped fight off. And he also ends up dying in bed with another man's wife. I mean, it's really seedy, some of this stuff. If you want the really bad popes, the 8th, 9th and 10th century is the place to go. But you also get sort of later down the line, even after the Renaissance, popes like Paul IV, who puts the Jewish community of Rome, who predate Christians, into a ghetto where they stay for 300 years, you know, confined, limited to really lowly jobs and has a lasting, very negative legacy in the city and his quest to retain the purity, quote unquote, of Rome. So he's he's a pretty extreme one. He has somebody boiled in a pot of oil in the Piazza Navona. You get popes who do really quite appalling things throughout the history of the church. And it really is this curse of being an institution where people are going to join for the wrong reasons and also a religious body there to take care of people, apparently. It's so hard for scholars like you because I can't think of many other roles where you've got a, a figure who's a temporal leader, so they end up controlling Rome and the so-called papal states, like they have a bit of an empire in central Italy at various periods, and then also leader of a global spiritual movement. I mean, it's complicated stuff. Yeah, a bit of a curse, I'd say. I feel bad saying that because, of course, it's it's remarkable and, and much good has come of it as well. But I think this is the real problem they face. Mussolini gave the Pope the Vatican State because the Pope said, I need to have my own state. I can't be subject to anyone else. So this role as a political figure is for the Popes tied to their role as a religious figure. The Vicar of Christ can't be told what to do by a King of Italy. Otherwise, he can't be the vicar of Christ. What if the king of Italy decides to change religion or just to, to disagree? Um, so the two are intertwined and it's a problem. I think it's a real challenge. Well, in fact, I've been the last person to, to praise Mussolini, but in a way, wasn't that kind of a quite a good decision from the church's point of view? Because they don't, although they are sovereign, it's the smallest possible scrap of territory. And they've been allowed to concentrate on their global religious role, their sacral role, rather than like making sure the bins get collected and you're sort of building roads and stuff, right? I mean, presumably there's some people in the Catholic Church might miss those days, but from a sort of PR, from a, from a messaging point of view, is it rather nice that they can now concentrate on just being the Vicar of Christ? Yeah, I think it certainly saves them a lot of protest. Um, there's a statue in Rome called Pasquino, or known as Pasquino, uh, where Romans for centuries have posted little notes slagging off the popes and, and other people as well. Napoleon gets a few nasty mentions on there. And today, if you look at Pasquino, Romans still post little notes on there. He's just off the Piazza Navona. It's all about politicians. It's not about the popes. But it doesn't totally save the popes from the ire of Romans and people living in Rome because it wasn't posted on Pasquino. 
Pasquino, but when Pope Francis made a decision that upset a certain sort of traditional group in the church a few years ago, um, there were posters overnight all over Rome saying, you know, how could you do this? Where's your mercy gone? Your trademark mercy. But it happens much less often because there are fewer people who are engaged with the Pope in, in the same way, in any way. And also, as you say, it's spiritual. He gets to be a pastor. He gets to be all the nice stuff. And I'm sure it's not easy, but it's a lot easier than trying to defend your borders, control trade, keep people fed and not rising up and being global head of Christians at the same time. So, yeah, I think there's definitely some truth in that. Let's finish off, Jessica, by just thinking about the some of the impact that Pope has had on the modern world, not just, of course, the fact that I think Christianity is the biggest global religion, but... Things like the division of the Americas with the papal bulls, you know, like actually the papacy has made gigantic decisions throughout history, some of which endure, presumably, and you, and you will have studied them all. But I mean, dividing up the new world between Spain and Portugal, and hence the Brazilian speaking uh, Portuguese and much the rest of the Americas speaking Spanish. I mean, those are things that really matter. Mm. And it all comes down to that idea that the Pope's a useful figure, right? If you can get the Pope to endorse what you want to do, then you've got a bit of legitimacy there. I mean, Henry VIII takes a different course, but he asks Clement VII, first of all, can I get my marriage annulled? And he doesn't get the right answer. But people are going to the Pope in the 15th, 16th century. The Vatican, that hill, that dusty hill where Peter died has become a hub of global diplomacy and people asking for the Pope's blessing for political decisions. And that moment where the Pope is legitimizing, ratifying this colonization of a land thousands and thousands of kilometers from Rome is a moment where you see, okay, wow, this prestige of Peter that Leo said will make Rome a much greater empire than it ever was when it relied on armies and triumphs and sort of worldly prestige sort of is coming true. And it's remarkable. And I think that we see that legacy today where it was Emmanuel Macron recently went to the Vatican to talk to the Pope. He's the head of a secular republic, went there to talk to the Pope about the Ukraine war. I mean, most Catholics now live outside of Europe. You know, most people are not Catholic. They're not even practicing Christians in Europe. And yet people are still appealing to the Pope to say something. Trump wanted to present an image of friendship with the Pope. It mattered to him. Well, that was astonishing. I don't think it's talked about enough. Trump's first foreign visit, well, he went to the Middle East. He went to Saudi Arabia, weirdly. And then on that same first foreign visit, he went to see the Pope. It was astonishing. It was like William the Conqueror asking for the papal banner when he was invading England in 1066. Like there is still this, it's this weird relationship where the Pope somehow confers some kind of spiritual stamp of approval. And in return, I guess the papacy gets to look like a, a major world player. I mean, it's a strange symbiotic relationship. Exactly. And even Napoleon, who crowned himself, really, really wanted that blessing. And he got really angry with Pius VI and Pius VII because they said, no, we're not just going to unilaterally bless everything you do. But he recognised the power of that. And then he sort of chucks his toys out of the pram and says, I don't need the Pope anyway. You know, I didn't want it in the first place, but he really did want it. You know, he, it was only when the Pope didn't play ball and said, I'm successor of Peter. I don't need to approve every little thing you do that he said, fine, I don't need you. But he wanted it, you know, and, and that's really why I wrote this book is how do we get to this moment where we still care a little bit in a vague way. We might not shape our lives around it, but we still for some reason care. And, and what are the roots of that? And how did that start? And it started in Rome in a pagan empire on a dusty hill. It's a good story, I think. <laughs> the death of a former fisherman. 
It's an amazing story. It's an amazing story beautifully told in your new book. Tell everyone what it's called. It's called City of Echoes. Jessica Warmbo, thank you very much for coming on and talking about it. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code DANSNOW at checkout.